Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors, a podcast in which I continue a conversation begun by children's television icon, Fred Rogers, in my PBS documentary, Mr. Rogers and Me. Each week I talk with friends and neighbors about how they're endeavoring towards depth and simplicity, despite an often shallow and complex world. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and today, singer-songwriter, Jamie Lenhart. If you've listened to any of my albums from the last 15 years or so, chances are you've heard today's guest. Jamie Lenhart makes Rent as a background and session singer for acts like Steely Dan and St. Vincent, and as a voiceover artist and vocalist for brands like Neutrogena and Tresemme. Her first album, The Truth About Suffering, earned local praise and spawned the breakout sing-along hit, Control Freak. In 2015, Jamie was commissioned by the world-famous public theater in New York City to create Estuary, an artist-mother story. Her one-woman musical narrative draws corollary between the mother-artist relationship and the ebb and flow of an estuary, those delicately balanced transition zones between river and sea. And this week, Jamie's releasing The Illusion of Blue, a collection of lush, beautifully realized compositions that explore love, loss, commitment, and rebirth. Despite being a very big deal, Jamie has always generously accepted my invitation to join me on stage or in the studio where we've recorded dozens of songs together from Blue Christmas to this 2020 cover of Yaz's Only You. Our version of Killing the Blues is, to be honest, pretty awesome. Somebody said they saw me Swinging the world by its head Bouncing over a white cloud Killing the blues But my gratitude for Jamie extends well beyond the music, stage, or studio because in all the moments before after and in between, Jamie has always been game to get into the gray areas of life, love and art, self, spouse, and family. She is, as you'll hear in this conversation, a true fellow traveler. Who loved you into being? Like, how do you think about the helpers that help to make you who you are and help to shape your, your view of the world? The first person that pops into my head is my sister, for sure. She really was like a surrogate parent. And I had parents who were, you know, as present as professionals in the 80s could be. I don't think parenting then was what we consider to be parenting now, you know. And as an adult, I understand that. But then it's like she was the person who was always there for me, you know. And we're about four years apart, so... She kind of ushered me out of lower school into middle school, you know, and things that we shouldn't have done and things that we did do. But I always <laughs> felt like she was fully open to me. Like I could really be mm. myself. I could really show my whole heart. And that was truly formative, you know, yeah. to have someone who I knew had my back that way. My grandfather played a big role in my love for music and cultivating that. He was always very supportive, always very interested and curious. 
made me feel like I was making really interesting choices about things, even if I wasn't, you know. Well, and, and for the listener, he was a cantor. So singing was his business. I was right. singing and spirituality was his Singing business. and spirituality, <laughs> right. You know, he was religious. Like he was, you know, not ultra orthodox or anything, but he was leaning on the side of very conservative, mm-hmm. observed the Sabbath and was kosher and, you know, spent his working life, you know, as a cantor. But I never felt that from him. He had his love for music everywhere. You know, mm-hmm. like he owned a summer camp, like, and they did the shows in the summer camps yeah. and he did all the scores and everything. And then he had a choir at the temple. He really expressed himself a lot through music. The other piece is, yes, we were expected to show up at Temple for the high holidays and do mm-hmm. things. All my siblings and my cousins and I like all went to Hebrew school and all had our bar and bat mitzvahs. Uh-huh. And he taught us all our haftorahs. Like he was our teacher for I all bet. of those. Yeah. It was great. But he never forced religion down our throats otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. It was spiritual. It was not religious, you know. He was a religious leader, but he didn't lead by religion. He led with his heart and his passion. And I thought of him as a cantor and I thought of him as my grandfather, but I didn't think of like him as this religious person who is my grandfather. I get the sense that you had a lot of that modeled for you. Yes and no. I want to answer with clarity. So it was never discouraged and music as like a part of our lives, like all my siblings and myself, was important. You know, like we all played instruments. We all were kind of just really immersed in different genres and different, you know, like we all liked different styles. We all did different things. They loved that I loved music and that I was passionate about it. And I was generally good at it. Generally. Generally good at it. You know, I mean, I was a lazy violinist, but like coming from like an upper middle class Jewish family, it's like, you're a musician, you know, like they never said that or implied that, you know what I mean? So I don't want to put the onus on them like the, or the fault on them, but it was more, I had a doctor and a lawyer as parents, professionals. And so I didn't have a path that showed me how to become a professional musician. Right, right. The idea that music is important or essential to the fabric of our lives was undisputed. However, like a lot of my friends who were raised Jewish, there was a lot of this doctor lawyer stuff that I mean, I didn't get, but I've now heard by proxy. Right. Like there, right. like a kind of like this idea of there were a couple of very specific privileged professions. My father had told me that when he was young, you know, I think at one point maybe he wanted to be a historian or want or something when he was young. And my grandfather said, you can do that once you've become a doctor, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that'll be your hobby once you've gone through medical school and done that. I mean, and none of us are doctors or lawyers, just right. for the record, you know, <laughs> just for the record. I actually got into law school. I want to tell you that I did get into law school. Jamie! I know. And I was like, that's so cool, except I don't want to be a lawyer. Like, yeah. I'm so curious about the process of the law. You know, I was like, that's a really expensive curiosity. I love you know? it. But I was like nauseous, you know, the whole time, knowing that I didn't really want it to the point where I had um, like a double kidney infection as I was going to take my LSATs. Wow, right. 
you know, I was like, my back is just really yeah, hurting. Me, you your know? body, your body is like jamming on the brakes. <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Like to the point where I couldn't take it because I was, wow. I was sick, you know? And so, and then I did take it. But as I said, like, it was like the 11th hour, like right when money had to be put down yeah. to secure my spot. I was like, mm, you know. I think I've told you this. The very first time you ever came to record in my apartment, I was like, why did I ask this woman to sing with me? She is such incredible control. You have a precision with your instrument. I was so gobsmacked by your competency and how like, I was like, oh God, what have I done? Was it Killing the Blues? Was that the first one that we did? The first thing we did was uh, one of the Christmas songs. I think you sang um, maybe Blue Christmas. Or, it was Blue Christmas yeah. in your closet. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but that was so much fun. It does hold up. It really does. I do tell the story more than once of what a miracle it is that you didn't just head for the hills the moment I was like, come on in. Oh, and then I was ben. like, now let's just, if you don't mind, step into my closet by yourself with the guy you've <laughs> known for a week. And what were you thinking? Why, like, why did you ever you said that you've been so kind to me, so generous with your talents? I liked you, Ben. I liked you. You're a Aww. good guy. You've always like, since we met each other and as our friendship has blossomed, like I find you to be one of the most earnest, truly questioning person that I, I know. And so even from when our beginning of us getting to know each other, I wasn't like, oh my God, this is really weird. And I don't know if this is okay. You know, like I was like, cool, we're doing like a really like simple project <laughs> that you set up so that the sound would be as it needs to be. And great. You know, like, honestly, it was as simple as that. When I was in my early twenties, I wanted to go out and see what work was there for me as a singer. You know, yeah. like I wasn't writing yet. I wasn't doing any of that stuff yet. There were like ads in the Village Voice at the time, you know, like. Yeah, yeah. That's how I found Tony Maselli. Is that true? Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, okay, so so you can attest to the yeah. ads in the Village Voice. And I met a lot of different people. And then, and there was a guy and it was like looking for a female singer for original songs. Oh and, boy. And I go to this guy's apartment and I was in my 20s. And, and he was just kind of smarmy and all his songs were about like female masturbation, essentially. Jeez. Oh, and like about how pleasurable it is. And I was like, I was like, you don't really expect me to sing this. You know, I mean, I was at least not dumb enough to be like, sure, let's sing it. You know, I yeah. was like, I was like, this, this isn't real. Yeah. You know, and he was like, oh, women love pleasure. And I was like, you have no idea what you're talking about. And I was yeah. like, you know what? And I left, obviously. And then I only did like house music stuff. <laughs> like, because I was like, I know what I'm getting into. How do you think of your experience as a singer? How do you think of it in terms of its import into how you are becoming you? So music or me as a singer? Because I, yeah. I think they're Ooh, two okay. different things. Yep, go on. Music will always be part of my journey because, I mean, I couldn't imagine a world in which I didn't associate something with a song or a yeah. feeling or yeah. Yeah. A, a musical a lilt or whatever it is, or hear birdsong. Music is as much me as my heart beats and how it defines us. Like how there was the song that you remember because it was the first kiss that you ever had, or it was the time right. that you, going back to my relationship with my sister, like when she caught me singing very loud to, I don't care anymore, you know, Phil Collins, because I was really mad. And I looked up and she was standing in the doorway, you know, and I was yes. like, I don't care. You know, and she was like, I, okay. So that 
music, when I wasn't even writing it myself, I could find things that helped express what I was feeling using someone else's. And it was music even more than poetry or, you know, literature. Yeah. And then my voice, it's not a love-hate relationship with my voice. Like there's not a hate, but it's a love and difficulty. You know, Mm. it's like sometimes it's an instrument, like the way that you experienced me with my voice, that it feels fully embodied, like it is my whole body singing, that it is just an extension of my expression, but a Mm. bigger, bolder, louder, more mellifluous expression of my speaking, you know. But then maybe about five years ago, I had a virus, you know, like something relatively innocuous, but it kind of came to live a little bit on one of my vocal folds. Mm. So like normally you feel everything when you're singing, your vocal folds, they move and they vibrate as they should. And with this virus, after I was better, like, and I never fully lost my voice and I never had anything kind of truly traumatic, but I was making tones and sounds that I was like, oh, I sound like Harry Belafonte when I hit mm. those two notes, you know, that one of my vocal folds got a little stiff as a result right. of the virus. And so I had to first learn how to sing around it while I was trying to make it better. But it was like, I had to figure out how to reconfigure. And when you reconfigure, it changes your whole relationship, mm. right? And so it comes and goes, and it's mostly on the go, on the other side of it. But every once in a while, I think, oh, I have to rethink that for a second. Mm. I have to. And so then it made me both like appreciate the instrument as something that is this living thing. Right, right. It's not like a piano or a guitar that like you can kind of know what you're getting when you look at it, you know, the fingerboard is raised and I need to fix it or whatever it might be. And you can do that. But like, this is like, I have to get somewhere to know where I am in my throat. And so sometimes things are effortless and sometimes I have to think about it more. So it's humbling and it's frustrating sometimes and rewarding when I'm wholly there, but it's like both emotional and physical and mental. Mind, body, and spirit, which I just, I don't know why it took me until I was 50 to figure out, maybe because I just stopped, we all had to stop moving, but I, Mm. I feel like I'm just this year, yoga was a big thing. And I mean, I appreciate how cliche that must sound, but it was the first thing I ever did where I was not moving so fast that I couldn't tell what was happening in my body Mm. because riding a bike or running or swimming in a triathlon isn't the same. It's just all connected but we spend a lot of our time disconnecting parts in a way. I would say if you're lucky enough to realize that you're actually even disconnecting something, you're kind of halfway there, right? Right. But sometimes we spend a lot of time pretty numb, you know, or going through the motions or going for the goal without, like you said, if you're doing a triathlon, like your goal is to finish it. Right. Not to be like, how does this stroke feel? Right. How is my right. arm moving through the right. water? Right. You know, you're not doing that at all. You're like, oh my God, I need to the next spot. I'm just tugging the body right? along with my will. <laughs> exactly. You know? Exactly. So I think, you know, that we are so lucky, even in that moment, you know, where we get this little glimpse of consciousness. Oh my God, I'm totally disconnected. <laughs> yeah. Wow. 
This can't be functional, right? It's yeah. functional, but it can't be good. Right. 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 It has been the greatest gift of the last few years. And as much as all this has been bizarro. Oh yeah. Um, I'm up to like a two plus minute headstand, by the way. Like, oh my gosh. like later I could probably fall asleep in a headstand wow. at this point. That's incredible. Oh, yeah. I think I'd snap my neck. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's been a long journey with me. I'm just yeah. happy when they offer me the option on like a plank to either drop my knees or go ahead down. Part of the reason I hated leaving New York was that my girls wouldn't be really girls like you. Well, it was only four years for me. Remember that I went from co-ed public school in New Jersey from first grade through eighth grade. And then I went to Brearley, which was a radical shift. Adjustment, right. Huge adjustment. Like what is the thing that pushed you to explore Brearley to say, I need a different experience. And Mm -hmm. then I'm assuming that applied to Barnard. My hunch is it's DNA. Does that resonate with you? And what might that look like or feel like for you inside that? Do you listen to Brene Brown at all? Do you listen to read a little bit? Yeah. She had this one piece. It was something that I heard her talking about the difference between fitting in and belonging. Mm. My takeaway from it was belonging is you for who you are entering Mm. a a group or, you know, becoming a part of this group. But belonging is you for who you are. Fitting in is you changing yourself. It's like a little zeleggy. It's like you're changing yourself to be part of what you want to be a part of. That is never quite as satisfying or fulfilling or non-anxiety provoking. Yeah, yeah, that too, yeah. (laughs) Right? And so I think that I didn't feel like I fully belonged where I was and was really searching for belonging. Now, did I wholly find it? I don't know. Like I found enough of it to still have those friends and have people that I, you know, and, and to push myself into it. But I think that, I think my life's exploration is about figuring out what belonging actually feels like. Mm, mm, You know, mm. I think I'm very good at fitting in because I know how to soften my edges. When you distills yourself down to like, who am I really? You know, is that person lovable? Is that person Mm. worthy of what I seek, what I want to be a part of. You know, I think that that's always a question. I loved Barnard, but part of loving Barnard was loving being in New York still. Because I think leaving New York made me think like, oh my God, I have to go fit in or belong someplace else. I see, yeah. Yeah. Right? And so I had a new experience, but I had it in a familiar place. Yeah. So it wasn't like all the training wheels came off. And the advice I give to like any of my voice students who are getting ready to leave if they're New Yorkers is to leave. I'm like, Mm -hmm. don't stay in New York, go to a campus school in the middle of nowhere, you know, and live that way because it's only four years and it's artificial. And then you can come back to New York, but leave to know if you want to be here. (laughs) Don't stay here. Like, you know, because part of me feels like I stayed because I didn't know what it would be like to leave. What were those early days like? I mean, I left college scared shitless. Oh my God, are you kidding? I was like the most clueless. I left school with the most impractical degrees possible. How did you spend those early days? Like, how did you put together your career? I worked at a tanning salon. One of the owners was a DJ at a strip club. And so all the strippers would come in to tan. You know, but I got paid pretty well. 
also remember that I then tried to go to law school. Like, so I had right. like, a, like about five very confusing years where like, yeah. I wasn't really doing so much music. That's when I dabbled and I like sang with other people's bands or I did recording for other people, but I was singing kind of purposelessly. Right. You were in essence singing someone else's tunes. Right. And then I thought about law school and I even thought like, well, I could be a music entertainment lawyer and then I'd still be in music. And then I was like, and then someone would, you know, put a stake through my heart, you yeah. know, because I knew I didn't want to be on the other side of it that way either. Yeah, me too. And so I think then when I got over that hurdle, then I started taking it like more seriously, like, okay, what do I want? I think I started taking voice lessons. Mm. I started writing some music. I, my first band came together. Mm. So then I started seeing myself as a musician and saw myself as being responsible to myself as a musician. That's a similar journey to mine. The idea that I was a musician always felt like a conflict with some other vision someone else had for me. Mm-hmm. Whereas mine was pretty clear. I mean, I, from the time I picked up a Rolling Stone and read about dysfunction as a living, I was like, I'm in, rock and roll. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm kidding, but I, I recognize myself in the fact that these were people who seemed to be wrestling with something from an empathy or a relatability standpoint. You know, you together with Michael are such a music luminaries. And of course you're humans and life is full of nuance and grays mm, and ups mm-hmm. and downs and so forth. But it's really nice to hear like, no, I wasn't always crystal clear. Cause like, you're so damn good. And like, you know, you see a person performing at the level that you do at the venues that I see you at. And you're like, you know, you see, you imagine a singular purpose. So it's actually really human and relatable that it's like, no, it was a little messy for a sec. I always feel similarly, you know, when I hear people say, oh, I knew from day one that I wanted X, you know, and like, here's what I knew. Like I knew, oh my God, I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's, it was so true that I have to say it. I wanted to be like on solid gold. And then I also had this fantasy. I wanted to sing that Sergio Mendez duet with this boy from summer camp. I love like, it. On a stage. Yeah. I remember I have these vivid memories of being very young and using the living room, you know, yeah. windows as my mirror. Yep. And my sister and I would like act out all of the, the musicals that we knew. And I think when I was that young, it was very pure. You know, like you said, for you, it was that you knew you loved it. And you also knew that it brought levity to a home that had a lot of weight in it, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The latter wasn't as alive in our house, but it was more like, it brought us a lot of joy and it yeah. made me feel like excited and happy. If I'm fully embodied, it is exactly who I am. I guess it's the moment where everything else falls away. You know, it's mm. like, I'm not conscious of trying to sing a certain way or hitting a certain note or worried about forgetting my lyrics or wondering if this is the right dress to wear or noticing that I'm pitched forward because I'm wearing heels that I shouldn't have worn or whatever it might be, you know, or looking at the audience and wondering, are they okay? So that happens to you for real. I'm not joking. Oh my God. It happens like all the time. Cause I, I mean, I've seen you like, you know, I'm in a room full of 200 people and like you could hear a pin drop and you've got like this insane instrumentation behind you and the precision is bananas. And I'm like, I don't know. She looks like she's got it on lock, but I know in my brain, I'm freaking most of the time. 
when I'm performing. Did you see Estuary when I did it? Are you kidding? It's changed my life, sister. Because <laughs> there's this one part, and I think just you thinking about it, that I was able to kind of articulate that moment. It's like an internal monologue, externalized, you know, about is this moment worth it? Like, am I enjoying myself? Is the audience mm-hmm. enjoying themselves? But I think that's kind of a universal thing. You know, there's a lot of moments of not losing myself in the moment, but instead being hyper-conscious and hyper either critical of myself or yeah. caretaking of, you know, whoever, my, my band, my audience, you know. Right, right. And then there's the other part where it was kind of like pre, you know, pseudo breakdown in um, Estuary where I started with like, am I smiling? I mean, does it look like I'm smiling? Or does it look natural? Or does it look I put on, you know, the whole thing about like, am I showing up a certain way for you? Like, and if I'm showing up this way for you, do you realize that I don't feel that way inside at all? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and the conflict, the internal external conflict that, you know, I admire the performers who wear their hearts on their sleeves. And I'm also disgusted by them because it disgusts me in me. Like, what would it really look like to be wholly free? And until I can really answer that for myself, I'm grossed out by it because it feels very untenable. Like I don't have a lot of compassion or empathy for it. Right. And and so sometimes I'll look at someone and I'm like, oh, you know, like just lock it up. Who needs to see that? And yeah. I don't really care what you're, you know, like I get super hardcore judgy. Because it's so authentic or because it's inauthentic? Like A and B, like both. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, there are people that you know that it's a put on. Those are a real turnoff to me, like when I hear them listening to themselves so much or whatever it is. But there are performers who I think that they totally, they believe it, you know? So like they totally believe it. They're not going into it inauthentic. They feel transformed by the end of a performance. Right. You know, so I can't say what's going on inside their body. All I know is that I have a lot of judgment about it. And I also have been in enough therapy to know that when I judge other people, it's because I'm judging myself. Right, totally. Right? Yeah. I mean, like, let's be very clear. Despite my best efforts to bone up on your work, like, I know one of your biggest hits is Control Freak. I get the sense of your song Control Freak that you have an ambivalence. It's a strength and it's a liability simultaneously, right? right? Is that kind of the subtext of the team? Well, again, like not quoting myself because, you know. Hey, from one songwriter to another, quote yourself, you know. But but so, I mean, the, the fun chorus that is really fun and just repeats, I am a control freak, you know, and, and all the things that go along with being control freak, right? But the first verse the lyric is toward one thing means away from something else. Mm. Vital, violent shifts. They take me from myself for a moment. Like the verses really explore touching those moments of not being in control and actually really liking them. Mm-hmm. But the deep path of my synapses are much more invested in controlling or yeah. have been historically. Right. That path is very clear. And the pre-chorus is, it's not that I don't want to have, it's just that I don't want to want, right? right? <laughs> like, because when you want something, 
you run the risk of not getting it. If you voice wanting yeah. something, right. there is the real 50-50 chance that you not, you're not going to get it, right? And then, boy, what happens to your self-protection then, Yeah. right? <laughs> so I think, you know, yes, the song is like an anthem for control freaks, you know, but it's also an exploration an acknowledgement, you know, of tasting the other side, tasting. And it's not about being out of control, Ben, though, either. You know what I mean? Because yeah. I think that's chaos. And I don't think any of us want to live in chaos. Yeah. But it's about being okay with not getting what you want and still having said it. You know, it's about failing and not having horrible feelings about yourself in, instead of being like, oh, that was a learning experience. You know, it's like, instead it's like, oh my God, I'm terrible. And I'm never doing that again. It's about vulnerability, right? And the risk that either we'll be judged or we'll judge ourselves. Right. Which is like the worst one, I think. You know? What kind of evolution or adaptation have you experienced, Jamie, in terms of your own relationship with yourself and how has art informed it? Hmm. Like that's an easy question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll watch the time. <laughs> I think I've become a little bit softer and more generous with myself. Yeah. And in doing that, I have more curiosity. Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't have the desire to be the best. I just have the desire to, to be more curious mm. and to be purposeful when I'm using my art, when I'm exploring myself as a writer or a singer, like, to really make every moment feel like it's, I'm not saying the moments are really going to be worth it, but to feel like I am wholly present in all the moments mm -hmm. that I'm working on it. I always fail when I'm trying to explain estuary as a piece of work to anyone else. How do you describe that body of work? I describe it as a musical narrative mm. of the... Struggle's not quite the right word. I probably have had a better word in the past, but yeah. it's kind of the conflict that arises between right. two roles that are incredibly important. And in my case, it was artist and mother. Really examining it and doing it in an unflinching way because otherwise it's just, mm. who cares? Honestly, right. it's right. like boo-hoo. Like a lot of people- You mean, mean you had that. to talk about <laughs> all the things. I remember like you had to like flip the rock over and look underneath and be like, oh, but what about this? Right. To me, it's like I had to either be willing to put it out there and talk about my fears about failure, both as a mother and as an artist and all the judgments I had of other people and judgments I had of myself mm. and the scary bits of being a new parent and the depressing things about being a new parent, as well as the really joyful things, you know? But like how those two roles could coexist. And sometimes, you know, one had to take over and the other one lost out. And there was really, you know, loss, obviously. Like mm -hmm. we learn, right? When you make a choice, there's a gain and a loss. The tension at the center of it or the conflict at the center of it was always so apparent to me. And I always felt slightly uncomfortable because I appreciated that the motherhood part is something that I couldn't possibly relate to. But this idea that... And, and that it had a profundity and a gravitas and a whole different mm -hmm. substance and depth that just, frankly, I will never understand just to own that. But that for me personally, this idea of feeling, well, am I this or am I this? And what is, what implication does this have on that? And how do I hold 
these things as mutual. Right. And we have them in all different places in our lives. Like this is just one that was so big for me, you know, that it was kind of ripe to either ignore or explore. Fred always said that which is most personal is most universal. Mm-hmm. So while there's a specificity and a universality to that specific narrative, it's massively applicable. Absolutely. Obviously, you know, you don't you don't get to experience motherhood, right? But but if you want to experience being a present father, then yeah. all of a sudden you have to think, "Oh, am I going to go to rehearsal for four hours and do X, Y, and Z. And what am I missing out on in my daughter's lives? And, you know, and so there are the trade-offs. And if you're conscious and considering of it, you do feel the impact. It's just maybe a different weight. I don't know. You know, I I can't speak to that, but, but it is like consciousness. If you're conscious, then you, then you do experience all that. I suspect I wasn't the only one crying in the room at Joe's pub, but like, <laughs> you know, it felt really close to home because I've never felt right about being an artist. I'm, I'm trying to reconcile that every day. <laughs> if the balance is upset, waters don't behave as expected. The sea will overtake the fresh water resulting in unlivable conditions. If they don't attempt to meet, the river doesn't join the sea. All will become stagnant. Nothing is able to breathe. I'm almost crying again. (laughs) Yeah. Because the show is called Estuary and I sat down and I read everything that I could take in and understand about estuaries and when estuaries fail and when estuaries thrive. And here's what I think is just fascinating. This is on Illusion of Blue, by the way. I did pull songs from (gasps) Estuary. So Estuary is on Illusion of Blue and it sounds so good. Oh, good. If they don't, In the first part of the chorus, the lyric is, the river flows fresh water out, light, and on the surface, the sea pushes back salt water in, dense and close to the ground. Not dancing close to the ground, mm. but I loved that you heard dancing because it is this kind of undulating thing, right. but it's it's because it's salt. Yeah. There's a density to yeah. it, right? Yeah. And so obviously this is a metaphor for the artist and parent. And you could kind of look at either one at switching roles, you Mm -hmm. know, like I didn't say, well, artistry is the light one on the top and, you know, parenting is the dark, dense one on the bottom. I I kind of purposely didn't define them that way so that you could imagine like, you know, which one wins at that time, you know, but the whole idea is an estuary can be the richest, most amazing environment. I mean, it is just unbelievable, you know, and- But if something gets imbalanced, like a huge storm, like a man-made dam, like something that happens, then nothing can thrive in it, Mm -hmm. right? And so it's like always trying to keep that balance so that things can thrive and grow in them, like our artistry, like our children, like ourselves as parents. That's the whole point, you know, like, because we don't want it to be stagnant and die. Right. (laughs) Right. Any of it. I don't know if you saw me just smack my forehead 
<laughs> and I don't know if this is right, but is, is an estuary a point where two ecosystems combine? It's river and sea, like it truly is river and sea. So like New York Harbor right. is an estuary, San Francisco Bay Area estuary, any place where you see rivers flowing out into the sea because the tides go in and out, right? I just interviewed a woman for a, a thing I did for the community for the last year. Her name's Dr. Jamie McRae, and she does what she calls ecotonics. She's a ballerina. She does ballet, but she's got a PhD in biology and specifically mm. is interested in what we would all think of as wetlands and marshlands and this mm. intersection. And her whole thing is that at the confluence of these two disparate ecosystems, there's a third ecosystem where something entirely different and even more magical can happen. Right. It's like your Venn diagrams, right? right? 100%. And that's <laughs> yeah. what you're talking about. But you're also talking about the like volatility and the balance and the constant movement that is. Yeah. The other thing I was struck by is this idea that we typically think in terms of binary, things are simple, things right. are black and white. And this is so richly nuanced and gray. Mm -hmm. right? right. Binary and, is easier to digest, right? I mean. And comprehend, but, but, but that's not how it is really. <laughs> that's never how it is. Salt water in. So that's close, right? Definitely. I mean, I, absolutely. Salt, that, that's da, 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 right. Okay. That's um, absolutely right. Yeah. And sounds amazing. And these other, these two women singing on the record, Latanya Hall and uh, Rebecca Haviland, and they're just like, oh, sure, I know Rebecca. Okay. You know Rebecca, yeah, right? Yeah. And Latanya, she's just a powerhouse, amazing singer. She's in Steely Dan. I sub for her for Steely Dan, and just singing with her is such a treat. And the, and that they complement each other, and then me in the middle, like so well, and it's just beautiful. Your first major album release is "The Truth About Suffering," and this is the illusion of blue. These are strong, like. <laughs> declarative sort of like all will be revealed how do they connect and <laughs> how does that journey inform where you're going the truth about suffering is that we essentially cause our own suffering right <laughs> i mean i'm not talking about living in a war-torn country or something like that i'm talking about our personal yeah. suffering the truth is that it's up to us to notice it and change it if we're brave enough to do so, right? Mm -hmm. And that kind of is what that record explores. Like there are a lot of songs that don't make any kind of declaration except like, oh my God, I'm still stuck there. Okay, yeah. I'm stuck there. But in a relatable way, you know? And with this record, with The Illusion of Blue, the title came originally from um, a trip to Iceland yeah. that we took and we were on a glacial lake and the glacier had calved some icebergs and they are this extraordinary blue, this like mm. bright, beautiful blue because of the way that the ice has been impacted over the, you know, centuries. Yeah. What we see, the only thing that we see reflected back is the blue. And so I started thinking, well, that's all we see, even though there's so much more in there, yeah. you know? And so what does that mean? for us? What does that mean for me? Like if I'm showing my blue, if I'm showing my whatever it might be, not so much the dis dissatisfaction, you know, but just like, you know, our, our blue period, right? Yeah, yeah. What else is there in there? And that was kind of what, what it came from. So it's just a, another, like an ongoing exploration of what's inside and, and how can we take the shadows off of it and take a real look at it. 
How does songwriting help you figure out who you are and who you're becoming, if at all? I think it helps me organize thoughts Mm -hmm. and it helps me put things out in a way that if I write about a painful period or something, then chances are someone else is going to hear it and be like, oh my God, I feel that same way too. If I don't write about it, then I'm just holding on to it myself and I'm not even inviting someone else to share in it with me, you know? And so I feel less alone once I've put it out. It gets less scary, I think too, you know, to, to be able to write things down and put them out into the world and for people not to be like, you freak, you feel that way. And instead people are like, oh my God, I feel that way too. It's no wonder really that I feel so at home with someone who asks, what else is there? in there. More than just the examined life though, we're both wrestling like many of us, like maybe most of us with what I've come to think of as integrity. I don't mean some dictionary definition of morality, but the lived experience of feeling whole, centered, balanced, or not. I mean the entire fragile ecosystem that undergirds all of it. Jamie's work helps me to explore, understand, and even reconcile my own misalignments in that fragile ecosystem. In her songs and in person, she gives me the courage to be curious about hard things, to move closer, to go beneath, to tease at the edges of some great puzzle because, well, we have to. If they don't attempt to meet, the river doesn't join the sea. All will become stagnant. Nothing is able to breathe whether falling, flying, and tumbling in turmoil, or wading in the brackish backwater of her soul, Jamie invites all of us in to share. And in doing so, helps us feel not only less alone, but more whole, more centered, and more balanced. Friends and Neighbors is an Essential Industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Learn more at friendsandneighborshow.com. And please help your friends and neighbors discover our show by sharing, liking, commenting, and rating. Really, it makes a difference. Mr. Rogers and Me is available on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and PBS DVD. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. Friends.